The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Listen now for God's word as it echoes to us from Mark chapter 3, beginning with the 19th verse. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain Jesus, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The first African-American professor to have his portrait hung on the wall at Yale Divinity School was Dr. Leon Watts. Professor Watts was one of my teachers, my mentors. An irascible presence in the classroom with a famously grumpy scowl, this seasoned pastor made clear that seminaries did not exist to bless young clergy on their earnest way. When a fledgling preacher would stand in the pulpit of Marquand Chapel and voice fluffy platitudes, Professor Watts would rub his forehead and audibly sigh. When the sermon was done, Dr. Watts would then calmly ask, do you really believe all that stuff? Although his language was admittedly a bit more colorful. Over the years, Professor Watts heard a lot of first sermons, stars in his crown. One of the things that endeared Professor Watts to me is that he would often hang around after class to chat with students. He would talk about preaching and the work of the pastor. Oh, mostly, though, he would talk baseball. Leon Watts knew more baseball stories than anyone this side of Roger Angel. And actually, Professor Watts knew far more than Roger Angel about one slice of American baseball history, the Negro Leagues. In the 1800s, Black athletes in this country played baseball. Uh, 
They, they played right along with everyone else. They participated in games organized by the loose collection of teams that would eventually become the major league sport. Shortly after the Civil War ended, however, this came to an abrupt halt. In 1867, the National Association of Baseball Players bowed to cultural pressure and embraced racial segregation for America's game. The Players Association voted to exclude from its ranks any baseball club with black players on it. This action led to the formation of all black teams, some backed by black business people and many managed by black former players with names like the Boston Resolutes and the New York Gothams. These teams played exhibition ball games against each other and against white minor league teams. Eventually, in 1920, these African-American teams organized and formed the Negro Leagues, all black professional teams that would exist until 1951. Made up of mostly African-American and some Latin American players, over 3,400 men played in the Negro Leagues. The New York Cuban Stars, the Boston Royal Giants, and the Kansas City Monarchs played before largely black audiences. The games were well attended and the fan base began to call for a World Series, a set of games pitting the best African-American teams against each other. In October of, of 1924, their wish was granted when the Kansas City Monarchs played against the Philadelphia Hilldale Baseball Club. When Professor Watts spoke about the Negro Leagues, he, he reflected on events like the 1924 World Series with great pride. He, he described players like pitcher Satchel Paige with awe. Watts related the story of how, uh, on more than one occasion, Page would invite the infielders on his own team to sit down and relax. No need to worry about defense. And then he would proceed to strike out the opposing side. Professor Watts described these athletes and their fans with admiration and reverence. Once, after telling us a series of, of these stories, Reverend Watts leaned back, smiled, and remarked, you know, don't you, this is where Jesus went to watch baseball. The good reverend's reflections, though, were not always so rosy. At other times, Dr. Watts spoke of the segregated league with a deep sense of betrayal. The players and the Kansas City Monarchs were as talented, often more talented than players in the big leagues, and yet they were denied the opportunity to compete and to realize broader fame and greater financial rewards. The rules of baseball conspired against these athletes because of the color of their skin. The promise that this country made to, to black Americans in the aftermath of the Civil War was ignored. In fact, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution was straight up trampled by the game we call 
our national pastime. Now, what does that say about our country? Many argue that practices like segregated baseball are part of a lamentable past, and often folk go on to suggest that this is something our nation has now transcended. After all, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947 when he was signed to play first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers. After all, our, our country passed massive civil rights legislation in the 1960s. After all, we elected a black president in 2008. Don't these milestones signal that we're no longer a country that, that weaves racism into the very structure of society, the laws of the land, the rules of the game? This is a critical question for contemporary America. This past year, while grappling with a worldwide pandemic, our country has also been plunged into a vital conversation some call it a national reckoning regarding race. The gruesome catalysts for this conversation have been acts of murderous violence against African Americans. It's a conversation, however, that's grown beyond race and policing to encompass race and education, race and healthcare, race and housing policy, and so on. As this topic has expanded, it's proven to be a difficult conversation for America. Now, now, I think there are many reasons that we find it difficult to talk about the history, legacy, and present manifestations of racism in this country. We personally don't want to slip up, get gotcha'd, or feel unfairly labeled as a racist. We, we see conversations about race as occasions for get anger and guilt to rain down. We want to believe that we've made progress on race in America, and we have, although perhaps not as much progress as we think. And we worry that we will be asked to shoulder the blame and responsibility for other people's problems. All these possibilities scare us, Sometimes, though, the things that scare us are good for us. And that takes us to today's text. In the Gospel of Mark, the ministry of Jesus scares people. Why are people frightened by Jesus? Well, well I suspect that the scribes fear Jesus because he threatens their turf, their authority, their monopoly on religious power. The, the scribes are, are used to being the ones who get to answer moral and theological questions like, who is God and, and what does God want of us? And, and then along comes Jesus. People start quoting his parables. Once faithful parishioners start attending Christ's lakeside healing services and the local clergy start to murmur. Interloper, carpetbagger, snake oil salesman. I don't like his theology. I don't like his attitude. And nothing about this guy seems, seems natural or, or healthy or traditional to me. We need to do something about this fellow. The scribes are frightened and their fear begets resentment and anger. 
Christ's family is, is frightened too. Friends whisper to them over the back fence, I don't know if you've heard, but, but, but rumor has it that Jesus has gotten involved in some, some pretty weird and wild stuff. He's, he's wrestling with dark forces, they say. He's, he's casting out demons, they say. And then to make matters worse, crowds of people surround the family home. Uh, strangers knock on the door, asking to use the bathroom, wondering if Jesus can come out and fix their bodies, mend their souls. The whole situation gets way out of hand. Family members worry that the, the figure at the center of all this chaos, Jesus, precious Jesus, their once calm carpenter's apprentice, small town boy, has lost his mind. Some in today's text want to tie Jesus down, restrain him. Others want to oust him, destroy him. Some suspect that Jesus is insane. Others accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies, Satan. It's a wild scene here in Mark 3. And this tremendous kerfuffle all starts, the good book reminds us, because Jesus has been casting out demons. That should give us pause. The spiritual thrashing and, and general drama surrounding exorcisms can bother folk. Members of Jesus' own family, good, faithful people, grow tired of the crowds, tired of the broken mass of humanity who follow Jesus around and seek healing. Uh, others pine for the status quo. They, they want a religion that doesn't cause such a fuss, that isn't so messy. A surprising number of folk in the good book and in the church today want Jesus to stop wrestling with the powers of darkness. In this morning's text, Christ's response to all this negative feedback is, is fascinating. First, he resorts to simple logic. Listen, your argument makes no sense. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If I was truly evil, I would not be working to cast out evil. And then he tells them a parable. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. It's a strange parable, right? Strange because in it, our Lord is explaining how to pull off a successful robbery. First you tie up the guards, then you plunder his property. Who's doing this robbery? Well, says Jesus, that would be me and my disciples. I am convicted a spiritual burglar. I steal people's hearts, says Christ. Of course, to accomplish this, I, I typically start by dispensing with demonic guards who stand in the way of individuals and in the way of all our society getting healthy. I have the distinct memory of being in junior high school and riding along in the back seat of a car with my Boy Scout leader at the wheel. 
We were driving through a part of Minneapolis in which the buildings and the cars and the people looked hard used, poor, and tired. Most of the people on the sidewalks were black or brown skinned. I asked our troop leader, what is this place? After a pause, he answered, this is the rough part of town. Why are these people here? I asked. He paused again and then said, I, I suppose, Scott, they are here because they made bad choices. Now, that was, I believe, the only answer that made sense to him. And that answer stuck in my head. It made sense to me, too. People make bad choices. Bad choices have consequences. I still think this is true. But it took me a long time, however, to realize that using a, a general observation about human behavior to explain gross disparities between the races in this country was a mistake. Over time, history and theology and the stories told to me by friends overcame the guard that I had in my head, the force keeping me from seeing a truth that was far more complicated. While we all live with the consequences of our own choices, we also live under the legacy of public policies, political deal-making, and cultural attitudes that existed long before we did. I want to commend to you a fabulously, meticulously researched resource on this subject. This past summer, Gerald Seib, executive Washington editor for the Wall Street Journal, wrote an insightful piece on systemic racism. Seib cited Richard Rothstein's eye-opening book on American housing policy, The Color of Law. When a conservative-leaning writer lauds a liberal-leaning thinker who's opining on an issue of significant public controversy, I figure something interesting is going on. Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, is a tour de force that lays out an extensive blueprint of segregationist housing policies implemented in this country throughout the mid-20th century. One example Rothstein cites has to do with workers who, who moved to San Francisco in the 1940s to assist in building the American Navy at the largest shipyard in the country. As workers flooded to San Francisco to get good jobs and to assist with the war effort, the Bay Area faced a massive housing shortage. The federal government stepped in to assist by building officially segregated housing. And as part of its plan, the government provided low-interest loans to white homeowners in the Bay Area who were willing to expand their houses to add extra rooms that might be leased by white workers who were employed in the shipyards. These loans were not made available to black homeowners in the area. In fact, it was the official policy of the Federal Housing Administration not to insure loans made to African-Americans. 
And this meant, of course, that banks would not issue these loans. I'm not going to rehearse every piece of Rothstein's argument <laughs> by the book, but I am willing to spoil Rothstein's conclusion. In the 1940s and 50s, federal housing policy in this country effectively shut African Americans out of home ownership. In his op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, Jerry Seib describes the implications of these undisputed government actions. For decades, government policies explicitly helped white Americans build housing capital and denied black Americans the same opportunity. Such policies have long tails. They consigned black people to less prosperous neighborhoods, with poorer schools, with effects that linger long after the policies themselves were changed. The effects linger long after the policies themselves were changed. My friends, I do not think there's actually a debate to be had as to whether there were sweeping systemic racist government policies in this country for over a hundred years after the Civil War. It's a fact. Although Jesus may need to tie up a few strong guards before our hearts can embrace that truth. The real debate begins, I believe, with the critical follow-up questions our country must address as we emerge from this troubled season. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about systemic inequalities that are the direct result of racist public policies? Having that debate in a clear-eyed, gracious, and faithful manner might go a long way to casting out some of the demons that have clung so perniciously to our nation's soul. Bless you on the journey of Lent. Have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen. <laughs>